Earth podcast with your host, Jake Weaver, engineered by Cedric Swan. Hey, everybody, we're back with another episode of Midnight on Earth. I'm your host, Jake Weaver, and we're here to bring you more knowledge, more light, and more love. This week, something very rare is happening. It's just me and an incredible lecture from Terrence McKenna. But for the first time in a very, very long time, in fact, it's only happened one other time, unless you count episode zero, which was the introductory episode featuring just me, only one other time have I been the only living voice on Midnight on Earth. Bryn Anderson of Vinyl Force Herbs, my incredible impromptu co-host, she just seems to be always available at the times that we're recording lecture episodes and beyond the news episodes. She's always there, but not this week. Why is that? There's a reason. Bryn Anderson's mother is dealing with cancer and she had to reschedule this recording and fly to where she lives in Salt Lake city, Utah, to help her through surgery and also caretaker after surgery. So thinking about Bryn and everything that she's done for this podcast and our audience of a hundred and now 16 countries, 116 countries, I just want to do something for her and her incredible mother, whose name is Deborah Hogan. She goes by Debbie. Her husband, his name is Jeff, Jeff Hogan. So Deborah Hogan, we're going to do something really special for her right now. And it doesn't matter if this is live, doesn't matter if you're listening to this the very next day, the day I release it or a week or two weeks from now. If you do this with me, the energy will get to her, it will affect her, it will help heal her. So what we're going to do is we're just going to take like seven seconds, 7.77 seconds, and we're just going to send some loving energy to Deborah Hogan. We want her to heal in Salt Lake City, Utah. We want her to heal. She's Bryn's mother. She's an incredible mother. We want her to heal. We want her to fully recover. So we're going to take 7.77 seconds here. We're just gonna we're just gonna think about healing light going over Deborah Hogan, even if you don't know who she is or what she looks like. Just just send send that spiritual energy. We're gonna do it right now. Ready? Go. Okay. That was actually seven point seven seven seconds, I think. Give or take. In spirit. So Debbie Hogan, just know that people all over the world have just sent you energy, loving, healing energy, because just like they are, you're part of the human family. We're light beings in a physical body. We're not our body. We're in our body. And together we're one big family of living light. 
So thank you for being an incredible human, Deborah Hogan. I can't wait to hear about your incredible road to full recovery and beyond, even better than before. And now we're going to listen to this incredible lecture. It's just me and you and Terrence from another dimension, from outside of the time stream. And as you know, his incredible brother, Dennis McKenna, has been on the show. We had an incredible conversation. If you haven't heard that, go back in the episodes, find that episode and listen to it. It's incredible. But before we get into the lecture and we've said our incredible healing prayer for Deborah Hogan and really all human beings suffering from this affliction of cancer, which I could do a whole episode on what I think some of the sources of modern cancer are. <laughs> That's a rabbit hole. That's an elephant hole. I mean, it just keeps going. Unfortunately, right? Part of it is psychological. So many spiritual, energetic, metaphysical people have talked about how cancer manifests physically from repressed emotional energy, repressed emotions, repressed feelings. You stuff them down and it's negative. It's, it's a strange energy. It's, and then it takes physical form. So that's one thing to think about. Not the case for everyone, I imagine, but perhaps for some people. But before we dive into the lecture, I need you to do something for me. Go to waveblock.com, waveblock.com, and there you will find EMF shielding stickers for your Apple iPhones and your Apple AirPods of all styles. There's various styles of iPhone protection stickers. There's also the two styles of AirPods. Waveblock is an incredible company that have created products to protect you. These products protect you. When you apply these stickers to these devices, it pushes the EMF frequencies, the electromagnetic frequencies, away from your body, which studies have shown to cause damage to the human body in various sectors, including destabilizing DNA. Look at the covalent bond situation. And the Bluetooth AirPods are right by the lymph nodes. Part of the lymphatic system, they're helping our immune system. And here are these devices just pushing these frequencies into your lymph nodes, just right there. These products are with us. The technology is now currently a part of our lives. We need to make sure we're protecting ourselves. We need to be safe. If you don't use Apple products, perhaps you know someone that does. They also need to be protected. We all need to be protected. This is something I've been talking about for several years. I do have a 20% off Midnight on Earth discount code to use at the waveblock.com website. And that code is MIDNIGHT, M-I-D-N-I-G-H-T. And that will get you 20% off whatever you order. No other podcast has that discount. You will not find that discount anywhere else on the internet. And if you go to their website, you will see the five-star reviews. You will see the video showing the testing. You will see the actual reports, the lab reports on the website describing the functionality of these wave block products. So please, people, 
Go to waveblock.com if you have an Apple device. If you know someone that has an Apple device, use the 20% off code MIDNIGHT, M-I-D-N-I-G-H-T, just like the podcast, MIDNIGHT. Get these and you'll notice the difference. So go there, check it out, everyone. Waveblock.com. That is waveblock.com. And also check out Blue Cobra CBD. Howard Hint, a.k.a. Big H, developed the greatest CBD oil product ever made, ever, on earth. It's called Blue Cobra CBD. I'm not even embellishing or exaggerating. I've tried more CBD products than you could possibly imagine and cannabis products because I was in the industry for a short, brief bit of time, a couple of years. Actually, I've been in the industry underground for quite some time, but as it came above ground and all of the billions of dollars went into production and investment, it created a whole new reality of products, an ocean of products. And let me tell you, the ocean of products, CBD products, there is absolutely nothing like Blue Cobra CBD oil. Now, why is that? I like to question things. That's what we do here. It is because the extraction method, how Howard Hitt extracts the CBD from the 100% organic organ-grown hemp is a proprietary process called the Hitt extraction method. No chemicals, no solvents, no gases are used to extract that CBD. It's 100% natural. And that retains the magic, the magical energy. Of the cannabis plant is a magical plant. Rosemary Gladstar, cannabis is a shamanic plant. It's one of the shamans of the garden, as the other plants have different functions. It heals you. That is what I'm trying to say. This product retains the magical energy of the cannabis. I can't say this. Howard will tell you directly if you email him at bluecobracbd.com. He'll tell you that it cured his cancer. I can't say that, but he will. You talk to him, talk to him directly, email him. His phone number's on there. Call him. If you know someone like I do dealing with cancer issues, you need to tell them about this product. Howard will tell you, I can't say this, Howard will tell you he knows a handful of people, three or four people that feel like it cured their cancer. I can't say this. It's totally, I know I could get in trouble. This isn't a claim I'm making. Howard is making this claim. I'm a journalist. I'm reporting on Howard's claim. And you better believe, people, you better believe that the woman we prayed for earlier, Deborah Hogan, she's loving the Blue Cobra CBD. You better believe I sent some down there with Bryn Anderson to take to her mother who's dealing with cancer. That's how much I believe in this product. I take it every single day. And it helps me be my best self. We have a discount code. It's a discount code. It gives you free shipping on any order in the Continental 48. United States. It is M-I-D-C-B-D. M-I-D-C-B-D. Use that. You get free shipping in the Continental 48. It's available all over the world. And there's just so much... I could say about Blue Cobra CBD, when Howard begins exhibiting this product at conventions, I'll be there helping him. He has a credible family. He's 76 years old. He wasn't in the cannabis industry before he created this method. 
I was. And I can tell you there's nothing like it. So please, people, go check it out. Check this out. Blue Cobra. CBD.com. And of course, I can't forget the money back guarantee. You buy the bottle. For some reason, you don't like it. You get to keep the bottle. If you paid shipping, you get your shipping money back. And you get the money back. So you get the free product, the shipping, the money back. Give it to someone who will enjoy it. No one has ever used it, to be honest. I don't think that's ever been a thing. Like, I don't think anybody's ever actually like, been like, no, this this is bad. I want my money back. That's never happened. It's just there. So you help you understand the value of this. He's willing to take a chance on you. Take a chance on him. I'm telling you people. I can't stress it enough. Anxiety issues, depression issues, pain, physical pain, because it's a topical, you put it on topically. I, I take it internally in my morning shake. I could go on and on and on. It could turn into the Blue Cobra CBD podcast episode, but it's not. But check out bluecobracbd.com. That is bluecobracbd.com. And lastly, I only ask one more thing. If you haven't done this already, please follow me on Instagram at midnight underscore on underscore earth. That is the address. Go there, click the button that connects us. And then if you use podcast listening apps like Spotify, Apple, Google, Stitcher, pod chaser, listen notes. There's so many, there's so many pod bean pod pod. I don't know. Where the pod pod. <laughs> Click the button that uh, lets people know that you want to know when this next episode comes out instantly. You get a notification. And don't forget to tell a friend that you know that loves these type of podcasts. You know them well. Tell them. MidnightOnEarth.com All right, people. Okay. Still just me here. Soon to be with Terrence McKenna from beyond. And of course you listening, I feel you listening when there's so many people listening and they're coming from all over the globe. Praise the great mystery of life. You feel it. There's an energetic connection. I'm with you. You're here. Terrence McKenna is coming, but we're going to read his bio. Just a very brief bio. There's long bios. This is a very brief bio. Terrence Kemp. McKenna, born November 16th, 1946, graduated April 3rd, 2000, was an American ethnobotanist, mystic, psychonaut, lecturer, and author who spoke and wrote about a variety of subjects, including psychedelic drugs, plant-based entheogens, shamanism, metaphysics, alchemy, language, philosophy, culture, technology, and the theoretical origins of human consciousness. He was called the Timothy Leary of the 90s, one of the leading authorities on the ontological foundations of shamanism and the intellectual voice of rave culture, and so much more. His books are incredible. His lectures are incredible. We're going to listen to one of those, of course. And just everything about him 
kept the interest in psychedelia going through the 90s because of his incredible intellectualism. He was so intelligent, he was so articulate, and he's funny. So you put those three things together, you have a captivating personality who's really leading the culture. And he was, when he was in this dimension, still teaching, still learning from him. But it seems his brother has taken a lot of the mantle that he once had. He's out there representing the McKenna family in this dimension in 2022. But the spirit of Terrence is always with us. He's on the other side working for us, doing work for us, all of us, all humanity. I don't mean just the conscious awakened individuals. He's working for all humanity on the other side. So this lecture that we're going to listen to is called A New Phase of Human Existence. And this was a talk from an ethnobotanical conference Palenque, Mexico. Don't have a year, unfortunately, but I'm guessing it was in the 20th century since she graduated in the year 2000. If I were to place a date on this just by sheer intuition, I would say 1990. But who knows? I don't know. But Terrence knows some things. We're going to listen to him. This is going to be incredible. I love these lecture episodes because we talk beforehand, we listen to this lecture, and I will be back to talk about it at the end. Usually, like I said before, Bryn Anderson is with us. She can't be here this week. We prayed for her incredible mother. We're still praying for her mother. It's a perpetual thing. It's a perpetual prayer. So she'll be back. But right now, it's just us. Me and you and Terrence McKenna talking about a new phase of human existence. Here we go. Well, I, uh, I, won't, uh, I won't talk very long tonight. Uh, one of the things I'm most passionate about in life is getting eight hours of Z's. And I don't think anyone's schedule should be disrupted in order to hear what I have to say, including me. So, uh, if I have a topic, I'm hell on wheels, but I didn't really have a topic tonight. It was sort of general remarks. I was very interested in what Jonathan said. It reminded me of just how thoroughly alienated you can be if you come out of Berkeley, because I've, you know, to my mind, you just can't run as a headline the news that America is run by subhuman jerks. It's been uh, Article One in my assumptions about how society works for about 25 years. It is puzzling, though, because since 1982, I've been advocating five grams in silence darkness, heroic doses, so forth and so on. And by the simple subterfuge of using big words, I've been able to slip through not only unscathed, but uncriticized, as far as I can tell, by these same 
half-wit nincompoops, those <laughs> crimes that were detailed earlier. My notion of how all this works is uh, not different in conclusion, but different in approach, I think, because I always tend to try and go for the big picture. And I'm very interested in um, the human condition generally and how we ever got to this moment. When you look at the rest of nature, there's just nothing in it like ourselves. And I think, you know, if this planet were uh, uh, devoid of human life and civilization, but had its full complement of rhesus monkeys, coral reefs, glaciers, volcanoes, and so forth, that the kinds of ideas that were developed in the 19th century by Darwin and the people who followed after him would be generally adequate to explain the situation. The astonishing uh, natural product is humanity and the civilization that's it, that it has created. And short of some kind of religious explanation, you know, that we are the product of God's generosity or something like that, which isn't very satisfying to a scientist. And I number myself on the outer fringes of that loathed minority. Uh, the human experience represents something entirely different and so to explain ourselves, we have to reach for some kind of an extraordinary explanation. Not only to explain, you know, our poetry and our uh, soaring cathedrals and so forth, but also the way in which we shame the animal kingdom by our cruelty, our brutality to one another, our perfection <laughs> of forms of lethal behavior that are uh, on a scale unimaginable in the animal world. And uh, my explanation of, of how this circumstance comes to be has by dint of what I think is intellectual fairness and other people call quirky happenstance, come to rest fairly strongly on these uh, consciousness-altering substances that are so important to all of us here. And I think briefly what I want to say to about it tonight, and I can go into it in more detail in private conversations or later, but here's the, the snapshot version of how it works. All primates form what are called dominance hierarchies. This means that the long-fanged, hard-bodied young males of primate species control the females, 
the juveniles and the older members of the of the social grouping. And this is a general phenomenon in primates. It reaches clear down to squirrel monkeys and and uh, from the higher primates to the lowest of the primates. And as we sit here tonight, it functions in us as well. This is what gender politics is all about. This is what power politics is all about. This is what racism can be traced to and so forth. So, and yet, and yet, somehow, at some point in time, there was a temporary suspension of this tendency in our species. It's a behavior. It's not an organ. It's not scripted into our physiology. It's simply a behavior like language, which is also a behavior and a behavior which makes a tremendous symmetry break with the rest of nature. And I think that, um, in order to explain the presence of language and the presence of our complexity, we're going to have to hypothesize an unusual set of circumstances <laughs> acting only in our species, as far as we can tell. Now, it's known that alkaloids generally, in low doses, have the peculiar... Um, quality of increasing visual acuity. This is, uh, it's not understood why this is, but it was very well documented in the late 50s and early 60s at NIMH by Roland Fisher, who started his scientific career as an ophthalmologist, that psilocybin increases visual acuity. And I think that the, the centrality of the phenomenon of addiction in human beings is a clue to our, um, origins or the origins of what we call humanness. Ron Siegel was at great pains to inform us that, uh, Elephants will push down walls to get to rotting papaya and so forth and so on. And to try and uh, imply then that fascination with altered states was a general characteristic of the animal, of, of mammals, let's say. Or he also talked about the birds and the bees. That's true to a degree, but in a way it... Uh, it uh, muddies the waters because human beings are obsessively addictive to all kinds, not only of substances, but of situation, of each other, of localities, of ideologies. I mean, you can hardly name a category of experience that we do not form obsessive and addictive relationships to. I mean, a guy steps to his front door in the morning and opens the door. If the daily newspaper isn't lying rolled at his feet, 
he slams the door and walks back into his house, now a menace to wife and child, <laughs> quite simply because an addictive behavior has been interrupted by the unexpected withdrawal of the object of the addiction. And we, we uh, see this in many, many situations. Well, I think that um, in order to understand what Lumholtz, who was uh, an evolutionary biologist, called uh, the single most dramatic expansion of an organ of a higher animal in the entire record of evolutionary existence, the doubling, nearly tripling in size of the human brain in about a two and a half million year period, in order to understand the presence of language and technology and its rapid exfoliation in our species, in order to understand our tendency to addict to all kinds of substances and situations, we're going to have to hypothesize an extraordinary evolutionary stimulation that began roughly four to five million years in the hominid line, our line of development. And I will lay out a scenario for you. You can sleep on it. We can argue it later. But this is my myth or my story or my attempt to shatter the Darwinian paradigm with a slightly different approach. Approximately five to six million years ago, a climatological process began in Africa, which is continuing at this moment, a slow process of, of drying. Seven to, seven to five million years ago, 90% of the tropical region of Africa was covered by a climaxed rainforest as dramatic and as species dense as the Rio Ijaga Basin, which is one of the most species-dense regions of the Amazon, is today. But at some point, this drying tendency began to force the retreat of this rainforest ecosystem, and in its place was grassland and savanna. Now, our remote ancestors, like most animal species, had reached, had occupied an evolutionary niche and were very content to fill that uh, niche and to maintain themselves there as canopy-dwelling, fruit-eating uh, primates with a complex but not extraordinary, not extraordinarily complex set of pack signals, as we see, for instance, in squirrel monkeys today and other tropical uh, or other canopy living socialized primates. Whenever a species feels its habitat under pressure, there is suddenly evolutionary opportunity for mutations which would previously be suppressed as inappropriate to in fact um, gain a, a certain currency within the population, if not an outright dominance. And 
our remote ancestors faced with a retreating habitat had two choices, extinction or expansion into a new habitat. And it was at this point in time that we began making brief forays out of the trees and exploring what had previously been, I'm sure, a very alien dimension to us, the forest floor and the adjoining grasslands. The other thing that can be said about almost all animal species is that they tend to specialize their diet. There's, it's thought that the reason for this is it's a very good strategy for avoiding exposure to mutagenic compounds, to toxins which will uh, break and rearrange chromosomes and, and that sort of thing. You know, most people believe, who've had, you know, one or two courses in biology, that evolution is driven by mutation. We know that. But most people think that mutation is driven by incidental cosmic radiation reaching the surface of the planet in a fairly constant rate, offering up then mutations to the invisible hand of natural selection. That's true, but it's a, it's a facile truth. The reality is somewhat more complex. The real cause of mutation is stress and Incidental cosmic radiation is only one form of stress. Another form that I think has been highly overlooked in an attempt to understand the human predicament and human evolution is nutritional stress. That an animal whose habitat is undergoing a, a retreat in, in size such as the retreat that these African rainforests experienced, will not only explore new environments, it will explore new dietary possibilities. Otherwise, you're going to die of starvation. Well, the plant kingdom has evolved all kinds of toxins in many chemical families in order to protect itself against predation and for various other reasons. So when you begin expanding your diet, or when our remote ancestors began expanding their diet, uh, it was not only a matter of eating meat, it was a matter of testing many, many plants in the environment. And the consequences of this would be a sudden increase in the number of toxically induced mutations, all of which without prejudice are then offered up to the mechanism of natural selection. As an example, which is not psychedelic, most of you probably know that uh, uh, birth control pills are the original source, and to this day much of it still comes from Dioscorea, species, which are grown, in fact, on a mass scale in Mexico. Well, sweet potatoes are a very close relative of these Dioscorea vines, and sweet potatoes throughout the warm tropics are a major component of the diets of many human groups. 
well, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to imagine the consequences of a troop of primates chowing down on a patch of Dioscorea vines that are extremely heavy in, in compounds which affect ovulation, the estrus cycle, so forth and so on. I mean, basically, genetic chaos would break out in that kind of a situation. And such situations probably occurred thousands of times over the course of several million years. That's a spectacular example and a fairly destructive one. I doubt that very much of evolutionary use to human species uh, arose out of interrupting ovulation and screwing with lactation cycles and this sort of thing through sampling of toxic plants. But at the same time, by chance or divine synchronicity, at the very moment that our remote primate ancestors were beginning to explore the grass, the uh, spreading grassland environment in Africa, so too was evolving in that environment a number of ungulate mammals that are the remote ancestors of today's uh, cattle, Bos primitiva gensis, the the uh, proto ancestor of Bos indicus, was one of these animals, and I'm sure I don't have to tell an audience like this that. Uh, the manure of these ungulate, multiply stomached animals is one of the preferred environments for a number of psilocybin-containing species of Basidiomycetes, mushrooms. So that uh, there's very little doubt that our remote proto-human ancestors would have encountered in the quest for an expanded diet, along with poisonous legumes and all kinds of other toxic plants, they would have encountered psilocybin-containing mushrooms uh, in their search for a new dietary uh, equilibrium. And I maintain that um, psilocybin has characteristics which uniquely set it up for the compound which may well have worked the changes on an advanced bipedal monkey with binocular vision and a complex pack signaling uh, set of uh, pseudo-linguistic programs that would lead directly into the development of a species like ourselves. It goes like this. First of all, I mentioned the visual acuity thing. Our remote ancestors uh, were omnivorous. This was one of the changes that went on. They became, they were willing to accept not only insect protein, not only small birds, which may have been eaten for a long time in the canopies, but they were into running down small mammals and eating them. Well, it doesn't take a great deal of imagination to see that if there is a plant in the environment of an animal that lives by predation, 
and that that plant will confer increased visual acuity, then those individual members of that species that will accept that plant into their diet will gain a slight advantage over other individuals of the species that are ignoring or treating this plant uh, as though it were not a potential food item. Because visual acuity, it's essentially the psilocybin was acting as, a, as chemical binoculars for these early hunting primates. Better eyesight means more successful hunts, which means more kills, which means more protein available to your offspring, which means a rapid outbreeding of those animals that will not accept this item in the diet. So that's the first stage of a, what I want to propose to you as a hypothetical three-stage process that would lead into the evolution of, of creatures like ourselves. It isn't dramatic. The next stage, however, is somewhat more dramatic. It is that psilocybin, like all uh, or like most psychedelics, is what's called a CNS stimulant, central nervous system stimulant. Stimulation is characterized by what's technically referred to as arousal. We all know what arousal feels like. It's how you feel after two double cappuccinos. It's you know, an inability to sit still, a restless moving of your attention through the environment. You're antsy. That's basically it. You're also more likely to confront a, a physically superior opponent and launch yourself at them, whether this be a potential food source or a rival. It also, in highly sexed animals like primates, Arousal means sexual arousal, erection in the male. And under the influence of psilocybin in this early proto-human environment, this would have led to what anthropologists delicately call more successful instances of copulation. That means sexual encounters which lead to impregnation of the female. So here's a second factor besides more success at obtaining protein, a second factor which would tend to promote the outbreeding of the non-psilocybin using members of the tribe. They simply were less interested in sex. Okay, now the other thing is psilocybin in that kind of a situation without the um, strictures laid on by uh, uh, tight sphinctered later developed religions, leads to humping all in a pile. In other words, an orgiastic style is what you would expect to see in that kind of a situation. Now, this, this is important because the social consequences of an orgiastic sexual style is men cannot trace lines of male paternity. Men don't know who their children are. Women know who their children are because they see the child come out of their body. 
but men have no sense of their own children. They only have a sense of the group's children. It's a factor promoting community, you see. And at higher levels, and this is, I would argue, probably a unique characteristic of the psychoactive tryptamines, they promote pseudo-linguistic activity like glossolalia, bursts of linguistic-like vocalization would have been common in these uh, proto-hominid ancestors because they already had a complex pack control audio signal system that existed in the canopy. So I'm suggesting then that psilocybin was a kind of enzyme that accelerated certain tendencies in our remote ancestors that set them up to develop a, a very complex repertoire of, of audio signals, which required larger brain mass to process, and a style of socialization that, and this is the important part of the theory, that suppressed male dominance, that this orgiastic sexual style suppressed male dominance, and that over time, uh, a kind of paradisical world came into existence on the grasslands of Africa, where today there are howling deserts, some of the most uh, extreme deserts in the world, the Sahara. As recently as Roman times, Pliny called the Sahara the breadbasket of Rome. That's only 2,000 years ago. 7,000 years ago, it was a, a, a grassland cut by uh, many streams with wet uplands and rain-shadowed mountains and a nomadic population of human beings that over time, they, they started out traveling and following along behind these herds of ungulate mammals, probably living off lion kills, killed by larger predators. But over time, a kind of pseudo-symbiosis took place between human beings, cattle, and I would maintain mushrooms. And the style of life was nomadic, orgiastic, communal, and uh, dynamically in balance with the rest of nature. Now that's as much as I would say to a, to a straight evolutionary biologist. But to you, I say, there was one other factor here, which is that at this high dose, higher than the dose that would make orgiastic activity possible, but a dose which makes sex unthinkable, where you're just nailed to the ground around the campfire, unable to move, <laughs> at, at that dose, there is a connection into the gestalt totality of nature, which I call the Gaian mind. I don't think it's a religious hypothesis. I don't think it's a theological construct. I think it's a biological reality. It's the unity 
of nature. It's the seamless totality of meaning that we have completely lost touch with, we 20th century civilization. And it's our lack of connection to this Gaian totality that permits us to participate in the murder of the planet. We are emotionally dead to what we are doing. If we could feel for a single moment the true nature of our circumstance, everyone would be an ecologist. Everyone would be concerned about the fate of the rainforest. But we have put in place a, a set of institutions that deliberately mask and suppress our connection into the Gaian mind because it would be so painful for us. 15,000 to 25,000 years ago on the plains of Africa, I think the human nature relationship existed in a wonderful dynamic balance that brought no disgrace to anyone. Well, so then the question becomes, so if it was so wonderful, what happened to it? Well, the answer is the very forces which created it destroyed it. They were forces of climatological change where there had been rainforest and then grassland, there came desert. And the spread of the desert meant the retraction of the habitat of the mushroom. And when the mushroom became scarce, so that it could no longer, these orgiastic get-togethers could no longer take place at every new and full moon as they had for perhaps a 100,000 years, when that was no longer possible, the behavior, the tendency toward male dominance, which had been chemically, pharmacologically suppressed by psilocybin, it had never been gotten rid of. It was there all the time. And when the mushrooms receded, it must have been like hell on earth. It must have been somewhat like what we are experiencing in the 20th century. It must have been an experience of people becoming brutal, animal-like, capable of mass murder. People became suddenly males... Uh, became aware of male paternity, of turf battles, of classes. And all of this happened right at the moment that agriculture was born. Agriculture, I think, was the great bad trip in terms of human development, because what agriculture did was it ended nomadism, because agriculture requires a sedentary lifestyle. Agriculture as a strategy for food production is horrifyingly efficient because what you do is you immediately produce surplus. In the presence of surplus, uh, there is a tendency to create a have class and a have not class. Suddenly, surpluses must be defended. In the world of 10,000 BC, the most advanced structure on this planet was the grain tower at Jericho. 
It was a storage tower for grain, and it was constructed so that you could carry rocks on your back up to the top of it in order to drop them on other human beings who were trying to lay siege to your grain supply. So put very simply, psilocybin, for the period when it was plentiful and in frequent use, suppressed ego, suppressed the sense of unique or individual identity, and substituted for it a kind of extended communal sensibility. And we, to this day, idealize this sensibility, but for seven or eight thousand years it's been a dream, because hard on the heels of agriculture come walled cities, kingship, stratified classes, warfare, mass murder, mass graves, all of these things, and nothing has changed since. We have only elaborated the efficiency of our maladaptive behavior through a few wrinkles like the phonetic alphabet and materialism and that sort of thing. Well, what's the point of this? Simply that now we are in the terminal phase of this maladaptive um, mutation. We have perhaps 50 years, perhaps 30 years. It may be too late right now. Nobody knows the real consequences of the ozone hole. Nobody knows what we're going to do with all this toxic waste that's being generated. Nobody knows how we're going to control our population without stepping on the toes of extraordinarily powerful and fanatical religious hierarchies that rule the lives of hundreds of millions of people with an iron hand. Nobody knows how we're going to gently untie ourselves from the albatross of civilization without going extinct. But I suggest to you that the the importance that I think most people here feel uh, toward, uh, about the psychedelic issue is because this is not about instant psychoanalysis or better sex or getting in touch with Native American lore or any of those things. It is quite simply the pharmacological means to medicate out of ourselves the lethal style of existence that we have created for ourselves. Uh, as straight a person as Arthur Kessler, certainly no stoner, suggested in a book called The Ghost in the Machine that we are evolutionarily so hardwired for murder that the only way we will ever be able to create a caring civilization is through pharmacological intervention on these ancient reflexes. Well, essentially, I'm suggesting a more complicated version of the same thing. You know, we have many problems, toxic waste, population, misuse of land, suppression of other peoples and classes, but all of these problems, to my mind, can be reduced to a single problem the overexpression of the individual ego. That's what it is. That's why 
we have worked ourselves into this impossible situation. And the only solution, I think, is to go back to the last sane moment the human family knew before we set out basically on the road to hell. And the last sane moment was about 15,000 years ago on the plains of Africa. In other words, before the invention of agriculture. We have to look very seriously about what was different in that lifestyle that we can institutionalize and inculcate into a global civilization of four or five, six billion people. Obviously, um, we can't advocate orgies at the new and full moon, not with epidemic sexually transmitted diseases raging around the planet. However, I think we can take, for example, a hard, hard look at uh, the fruits of monogamy. And, and most importantly, I think we can take a very hard look at the cultural implication of psychedelic use. Most people talk about it in terms, and I do as well, in terms of uh, uh, individual right, uh, human liberty, but it's a social obligation, I think, to try and find strategies to manage and, uh, and, uh, erode the control of ego. A very powerful factor in global civilization that is pushing us all toward rack and ruin is materialism. The grip of materialism on the modern imagination has been achieved by convincing each and every one of us that you're nothing except for the things that you have. Psychedelic users know that the greatest riches lie right here. That's the counterpoise to Kmart and Costco and Yves Saint Laurent and Enzio Ferrari and all the rest of these people who trot out these toys that cause us to feel inadequate and incomplete unless we possess them. So I, I see the psychedelic thing as literally a fight for the life of not only the human species, but all life on the planet. Capitalism is not a user-friendly system. Capitalism will continue to extract metals and cut down forests and enslave third world populations until there is nothing left to cut down and nothing left to dig up. Uh, the, the psychedelic issue, you know, it's always been such a puzzle to me why they attack it with such invidious fury, the institutions that seek to suppress it, because it's not like hard drug addiction. It's very, very, uh, manageable and mild in its effects on society unless there is a kind of unconscious realization that the entire society is pinned together by a cult of ego and that the psychedelics somehow erode and call into question this cult of ego. 
And so what I would leave you with tonight is simply the idea that I, I don't see us as, um, you know, involved in some kind of minor civil liberties issue where we are adjusting our right to experience yet more pleasures or more insight for our own self-satisfaction or aggrandizement. But very simply, we have to choose between this archaic, shamanic, non-materialistic, magical, female-oriented, Gaian lifestyle, or we choose death for ourselves, our children, the rainforests, the oceans, everything. And, uh, you know, nowhere is it writ in adamantine that intelligence shall be preserved by the evolutionary process. Ninety-five percent, ninety-five percent of all species that have ever existed on this planet are now extinct. They've, you can see them, you know, the hecodonts, the pleosaurs, the great sauropods, all of these creatures are now simply locations in various shales and, uh, and the stratigraphy of the geology of the planet. And it's, I think, incumbent upon anybody who feels any portion of this message to take a stand. It's not a stand for human liberty. It's not a stand for something as as Western as, and uh, recently invented as intellectual freedom or something like that. It's literally the life of all life on the planet depends on how we human beings come to terms with this maladaptive situation. Because you see, during the period when we were under the aegis of the great goddess and communicating with her through her sacred plants, that's when we invented community, loyalty, self-sacrifice, ethics, a sense of moral justice. It wasn't developed at Ur or Sumer or Babylon. I mean, those places outrage a sense of moral justice. It was developed in the archaic, shamanic, nomadic, Gaian phase. And our nostalgia for that it should be honored. It isn't, uh, it isn't an illusion of the human mind, as some historians have wanted to suggest, to believe that older is better. It is, in fact, an authentic memory of the last sane moment that we ever knew. And, you know, you can commit suicide if you like, but making that decision for your children and their children and the children of all the other species on the planet is a crime for which there isn't even a name. So appalling is its magnitude. So I, that's really all I want to say. I mean, I could, you know, pound the pulpit and claw the air. But I think that this is the single most important issue at large in the world today. 
And people such as ourselves who by good fortune and chance and synchronicity find ourselves on the fringes of this issue or if agreeing in any small part with what I've said here this evening, there's a, a, a moral obligation to uh, put this out in the, in the marketplace of ideas. Millions of people, billions of people, need the um, calming assurance that comes from experientially verifying the existence beyond the grave. And I think that at the end of history, this is what will happen, that very shortly, the, the instability built into the system is going to transform material existence beyond all imagining. The culture, the, the global civilization is dying. There are too many problems. They're accumulating. You have to be blind to not realize that this is really, in fact, the end of the road. And that it is, um, you know, the ozone hole, the toxic pollution, toxification of the ocean. We can't pretend that these things are easily reversed by simply recycling or something like that. No. Instead of this clutching to keep it all like it is and say, oh, no, no, please, no future, please, no future, we have to say, okay, deep breath. It's like that first wave of psilocybin when you feel it sweep over you or ayahuasca. And you realize, you know, my God, my God, here it comes. I've done it this time. <laughs> well, we've done it this time, folks. We have been planning human mass suicide for 15,000 years. Not a moment was not dedicated to this goal. And now it's upon us. And it's a, a cause for great rejoicing. We will go off into hyperspace. The planet will heave an enormous sigh of relief. <laughs> and if it can come back from an asteroid impact that leaves nothing larger than a chicken standing around, then I dare say in 50, 60,000 years, you know, the glaciers will run, the jungles will restabilize, the ocean will cleanse itself. And as the I Ching says, no blame, no blame. The metaphor that we have to keep in front of ourselves, you know, you, you all know the cliche, uh, ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny, right? Do we all understand what this means? No. It, it, it's, it means it's something that embryologists in the 19th century created, and I think it's fairly profound. It's that a fetus, a human fetus, uh, recapitulates the entire history of evolution on this planet. It begins as a tiny one-celled organism. It becomes a fish. It becomes a reptile. It becomes a mammal. It becomes a human being. But the part of the recapitulation of phylogeny that we've ignored is extinction. For, for a million years, we have been uh, afloat in the gentling amniotic ocean of the planetary environment. Imagine the fetal crisis of birth 
You exist as a fetus inside your mother. Food is delivered through the umbilical cord. Oxygen delivered the same way. Endless space, weightlessness. The dream, paradise, all needs are met. And then something begins to go wrong. <laughs> the walls close in. The and you begin to be propelled into the birth canal, strangulation, death. The fetus must know at that moment incredible fear. Everything is going to be destroyed. The world is ending. Yet, how could the fetus at that moment imagine Hieronymus Bosch, or nuclear physics, or global politics, or starflight, or any of these things. We are now in the birth canal of a new ontological order of human existence, and the walls are closing in. There's no going back. The amniotic ocean, the, the unpolluted, endless frontier of a game-rich planet, forget it. We've been in the birth canal for 10, 15,000 years, and now we're approaching transition, the most violent part of the birthing process. And all you can do is scream unless you have some superordinate knowledge of what is going on. The shamans, shamans in the rainforest, shamans among us, and as a goal for each of us, must act as the midwives to a new order of existence. There's no going back. We've burnt this scene to the ground. And the womb is stretched. The womb is traumatized. But it can recover. And But the, the child and the mother must be parted. Again, the metaphor of pregnancy. If a pregnancy is somehow... Um, doesn't, if the birth is not smooth, if the child is not parted from the mother, toxemia sets in. And then both, and then you have a real crisis. The life of the mother, the life of the child, everything is in danger. This is the re, this is the real problem. I don't think we've reached that place yet. I think that we'll go fairly smoothly into hyperspace, but I think the emergence in the last 20 years of uh, masses of human beings taking psychedelics, masses of human beings talking about getting in touch with the spirit, talking about a, a new shamanism, an archaic revival, this means we are very, very close to seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. And it's a radiance, the, the, the meaning and the depth of which cannot be told because we are, after all, being born into a higher dimension. But if we believe in the dynamics of nature, if we believe in the rightness of being, then there should be no anxiety. There should be no alarm. This is what psychotherapy and shamanism and all these things exist for, is to spread the truth about the situation so that we don't clutch and we don't hold on and spread panic and hysteria. Uh, and that's what I've learned from psychedelics. Uh, to get to the spirit, I can't see for myself, I can't see bypassing the heart. 
Um, but anyway. Well, don't you think that that the collapse of everything familiar is going to open our hearts? I mean, look at what AIDS has done. Look at what our the information we have about the rainforest or the pictures of Somalia. I mean, the the most open-hearted of us open first, but before this is over, every one of us will probably bury the dead and walk through, I mean, hell, and it will open the heart. It can't fail to open the heart. I mean, when a friend dies in your arms, Maybe the first time it doesn't work, but the second, the third, the fourth, I mean, we are going to get it sooner or later. And it's, it's bigger than all of us. I mean, it's just so big. And it's always been there in miniature in the phenomenon of our own deaths. But we didn't, we don't look at that. But you know, if you will contemplate your own death, your heart will open. I mean, the truth that I've learned from psychedelics, to put it into bumper sticker form, <laughs> if that's the way to think of it, mm -hmm. is uh, this is the hardest truth there is. This is the distillation of 50,000 years of, of, of nomadic hunting and orgies around the campfire and rockets to the moon and, and the whole thing. It can be summed up in a single phrase. Nothing lasts. Nothing lasts. Everything is changing into something else. Heraclitus said this. He said, Pante Rea, all flows. Uh, we flow into this world, we inhabit it, and we move on. Nothing lasts. Not your career, not your fortune, and finally not even your own sweet self. Everything is replaced. And if we can open ourselves to this by the heart, by the, by the mind, I mean, there's all ways, then we will find the dignity to, and, and this is not about being born in the generation at the end of the world. This is something that would have worked at every moment in history. After all, Heraclitus lived 2,500 years ago. This is the truth of true maturity. Nothing lasts. I mean, every time I, I take a trip or, or eat a fine meal or make love or visit an art gallery, I feel the transience of it and that enriches it. That's the heart dimension is the poignancy of knowing that this too shall pass. This too shall pass. You know, the earliest piece of poetry in English is called Deor's Lament. And it begins, nine winters we Elfiel held Marenglenberg. That now is gone. This too shall pass. It was a song sung by a poet to a king somewhere in, in France in, in, the, in the 10th century or something like that. Everything is in transition. And uh, the material body can resist this truth. Because the material body understands that if it passes, then it will be replaced by something which it can imagine. And that, that triggers a, an anxiousness. But I think this is what psychedelics teach, that, uh, 
nothing nothing lasts and if we can incorporate that and live it we will live every moment to its fullest people who are hiv positive they get to walk around with the knowledge that nothing lasts and in a way they are privileged because after all any one of us could be bitten by a snake today and die or have a tree fall on us or be run over by a bus we would have missed living in that heartful dimension where you know that you 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 too will uh, will move from the scene and make way for something else and that is what i learned from terence mckenna what an incredible discussion brin what did you think of that oh wait brin's not here She's with her mom, like we talked about at the beginning of the episode. Nothing lasts. So true. This is also a Mary Prankster axiom. Something I've heard Ken Babs say and when Ken Kesey was alive. The other pranksters. Nothing lasts. It's true. Everything is in flux, changing, mutating. Whether it's stress causing the mutation nutritional stress, whatever it is, the mutations never end. Literally, it's by the day. And we are going into this incredible new world. I feel some of the things Terrence stated at the very end there, maybe we're a little doom and gloom. That's okay. He felt like we might be heading towards the end of the road, extinction, And granted, this was probably recorded about 30 or so years ago. I don't know if I agree with that. In fact, I don't. But what I do agree with is that there's no going back. There's definitely no going back from where we were to where we're going, which is the best possible scenario. We are mutating towards a heaven on earth, an incredible conflict-free human state of development. Very human. It's a progression. It's the culmination of all progressive efforts, all efforts that are moving humanity forward. But just an incredible conversation from one of the legends, the history, the stoned ape theory. He talked a lot about how the mushrooms interacted with hominids as they developed with the brain tripling in size over a very short time period of time from an evolutionary sense he felt and probably still feels wherever he graduated to that these mushrooms the psilocybin helped us develop it created an acceleration of processes really at the end of the day it may have been one mushroom situation which opened up a new awareness which then was adapted in non-psychedelic situations so therefore It's accelerating development. And I loved how he talked about how he said, oh, I have nothing to talk about. In fact, I have no topic. And yet he pulled that out of thin air. And thank God it was recorded. Thank God that these lectures, these incredible lectures of all of these different speakers are recorded. They're all recorded and available. And I love listening to them with you. I hope you learned something from this as I did. Really, when you think about what he talked about, just how 
evolution just continues. And he said something that we talk about a lot on the show is that the world that we're going into, our material third dimension is going to be so exponentially different, different, just different how we process information. It's going to be so different, the three-dimensional material information, that it's going to seem like we're in a different world, almost on another planet, and yet it will still be our incredible planet, our same beautiful Earth. Somehow, it's going to be mind-blowing. It's going to happen in our lifetime. Our children, our grandchildren, it's just going to keep going. Nothing lasts. It just keeps mutating in a forward expansion. Life is for expansion and fuller expression. That is the nature of the universe. That is truly the nature of life itself. Expansion and fuller expression. Never retraction. So we're always going to be moving forward. We're always going to be growing. We're always going to be more than we were before. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this with me. Our next lecture episode, we will have Bryn Anderson back. God bless her and her amazing mother and her whole family and her amazing mother, though, who's dealing with cancer right now. She's going to triumph. We sent her healing energy. We're going to continue to send her healing energy. And thank you all for being a part of this show, which is also expanding and mutating and growing constantly. The countries go up. The number of listeners go up. The number of people binging goes up. They, they find one episode they like, and suddenly they're listening to 20 episodes, 30 episodes. They feel a connection with me. I feel a connection with you. And we'll talk about that more when we get to stretch out on the next Beyond the News episode, which I believe is coming up in the next two episodes. But until then, we will see you next week. Love you all. Thank you so much for everything. I absolutely love all of you. My fellow blessed light beings, my fellow humans, midnight on earth.